Hi friends, this is Justin from Why Catholic. I really appreciate everyone who has donated to keep this podcast going. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if people could support this podcast, but also get something in return? So I created a Why Catholic merch shop. You can find it on Etsy. Just search for Why Catholic. And I've also linked to it in the show notes. These designs are 100% original. I wanted to make something that shares our faith, but also looks trendy. You can find t-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, and more. And I'm constantly adding to the store as well. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks so much for supporting Why Catholic. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We have been talking about the Sacrament of Holy Orders, which pertains to the offices of bishop, priests, and deacons. In episode 38, we dove into the Jewish roots of holy orders. In episode 39, we talked about the apostolic succession and how Jesus' authority was passed down to his apostles, and then they appointed bishops to carry out the ministry in an unbroken line of succession. In episode 41, I shared an interview with Father John Paul Kern, who was a former high school classmate of mine and has since converted to Catholicism and become a priest in the Dominican order. Today, we're going to talk about the role of deacons. And to help me, I had the opportunity to interview my deacon, Deacon Tom Tosti. Before we get to the interview, let's talk a little bit about the role of deacons. We find the introduction to this office in Acts chapter 5. It says, quote, Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timur, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them." The purpose of the diaconate, or the deacons, was to serve. In fact, the word deacon means servant. Deacons assisted the apostles by caring for widows, distributing food, and so forth. This wasn't a pedestrian role that was just given to anyone. We see that the apostles bestowed authority on them by the laying of hands. They were men in good standing and full of the spirit and of wisdom. In fact, the first recorded Christian martyr was one of these original seven deacons, Stephen. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred around 106 AD, declared that the office of the deacon is, quote, the ministry of Jesus Christ, end quote. He also made the following observation, quote, the deacons too, who are ministers of the mysteries of Jesus Christ, should please all in every way, for they are not servants of food and drink, but ministers of the church of God. He continues on, correspondingly show the deacons respect. They represent Jesus Christ just as the bishop has the role of the father and the presbyters or priests are like God's counsel and an apostolic band. You cannot have a church without these, end quote. Deacons were like the eyes and ears of the bishops and priests, whereas the bishops oversaw a region of churches, and whereas the priests led the liturgies and sacraments in individual churches, the deacons really focused on ministering to the people and leading efforts of charity. The first 400 years of Christianity is considered the golden era of the diaconate. With a steady transformation of the presbyterate, or role of priests, we see a decline in the office of deacons. 
By the end of the 4th century, they were no longer considered part of the bishop's personal staff. Instead, they served the local priests as assistants, and because the relationship between priests and deacons was never officially defined, the diaconate eventually disappeared in the Western churches around 475 AD. One of the major reforms that came out of the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s was redefining and reestablishing the office and role of the diaconate. In the interview, you're going to hear Deacon Tom talk about how his father was part of the first class of deacons after Vatican II revived it. You'll also hear him use the term ordinary and extraordinary ministers. Ordinary ministers refer to those members of the clergy, whereas an extraordinary minister is a layperson doing some of the tasks that typically a cleric would do. For example, when distributing the Eucharist at Mass, priests often rely on extraordinary Eucharistic ministers, lay people, who help the priest in giving the Eucharist to the congregation. I want to dive into the interview now, but let me preface it by introducing you to Deacon Tom. Deacon Tom serves the Archdiocese of Salt Lake. Specifically, he spends the majority of his time with St. Mary's Church in Park City. My earliest memory of Deacon Tom was at a Mass leading up to Easter. It was one of the weeks of scrutiny where adult catechumens, which are those considering becoming Catholic, are brought to the front of the church. Deacon Tom always preaches at these scrutinies because he leads the RCIA program at St. Mary's. RCIA stands for Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. It's the class all teenagers and adults take when they are converting to Catholicism. Deacon Tom's sermon that day focused on the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Here's a snippet from his homily. Quote, Many people think that the RCIA program is all about knowledge, all about learning about the Catholic Church, and partly it is, but mostly it is about falling in love. There are lots of people who have knowledge of the Church and its teachings, but not a lot of us are actually in love with it. There are lots of people who have a rudimentary knowledge of Jesus, but not a lot of us are actually in love with him, because knowledge is not enough. He went on to say, We are all the woman at the well. We all have a past that includes things we aren't particularly proud of. We all have sinned, and we have felt the worthlessness sin can bring. And we have all encountered Jesus in some way or other. Some of us have moved our relationship with him to another level, to the level of trust. Some of us have gone all the way to love. We have fallen in love with Jesus. End quote. That stood out to me because I was raised believing that Catholics just went through the motions of religion, emotionless about a relationship with God. Deacon Tom set the record straight that day. All of Catholicism is about falling in love with Jesus. A few months later, I got to know Deacon Tom and his wife Nancy really well. When my kids and I were considering becoming Catholic, they had us over to hear our story and talk with us about the process. Then we entered into the RCIA program and met with them every week from September to April. Deacon Tom truly has a servant's heart. On top of being a deacon, he works full-time at Franklin Covey, and he has his own business called Tecton Woodworks, where he makes stunning liturgical pieces made of wood, metal, and stone. Here's my interview with Deacon Tom Tosti. Well, thank you, Deacon Tom, for taking time to talk with me today on, on Why Catholic. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. So tell me a little bit about your Catholic upbringing to begin. Oh, well, I'm, uh, I often make the comments that I'm cradle to grave. So uh, I was born to a large uh, Italian Catholic family. Um, I was adopted into that family, actually, in Massachusetts. And so it was, it was very, very cultural. Uh, all my family you know, had all the, 
um, the events, the meals, the uh, the special festivals and things like that. My grandmother used to have all the little saints lined up on her bureau, these little statues of all the saints and stuff, and she'd pray to them every night. And so it was it was really cultural. Um, but then my family moved to Southern California when I was nine, so we were very separated from the rest. My father was a very um, devout Catholic. He was a charismatic Catholic. Hmm. And so I was actually part of that when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. We used to go to uh, Loyola Marymount where Father Hampsch was doing all the, the Southern California renewal community for um, for charismatics. And so my father spoke in tongues and I was slain in the spirit and all those kinds of things. So, so I was very emotionally attached to my faith. It wasn't just something that was cultural. And... Um, so then that's sort of what, what um, has followed through. I still consider myself to be a, a charismatic, um, even though it's probably just the, the internal workings of the spirit that I'm much more aware of. But um, it was probably my father's influence mostly that, that led me to the diaconate. In fact, he was in the first um, discernment class back, I think, in 1972 or 1973 in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. But then he um, he came down with um, uh, esophageal cancer. And so, uh, actually, cancer of the larynx, so he couldn't speak. So he had to drop out of all that. But um, when he died... Um, like 15 years ago, I was going through his papers, and I found actually his application to the archdiocese for the diaconate. And so, you know, so I guess it was sort of meant to be that I would follow in those footsteps. Tell me a little bit about that process. What made you decide uh, that you were interested in becoming a deacon? You know, it's changed, uh, and probably it isn't um, necessarily a very pure journey. It wasn't... Uh, very altruistic. It wasn't that I, you know, I felt this this amazing calling and so forth. I had always thought I considered the priesthood when I was younger, and then you know got into high school and discovered girls, and that all went away. <laughs> um, especially because the girl I discovered in high school is still my wife uh, forty <laughs> years later. So, um, but I don't know. It was sort of like I was so involved in the church. Um, I was. A lector, Eucharistic minister, parish council president, all those things. So I was really, really involved. I was a catechist, did a lot of um, with RCIA, which is where I met you. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had all the stuff. I was very well um, prepared from a skill standpoint. But I think when I first looked at it, I thought it was being more like an honor. It was something, it was probably clericalism to a large degree. It was like, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm up here. I'm doing all these things. And so why not? You know, so let's make it official kind of a thing. Hmm. It's very much changed over the last 20 years. How so? Um, Father Bob, our former pastor, um, told me once when I was discerning that the church ordained him a priest, but his people made him a pastor. So I always say the church ordained me a deacon, but the people have made me a servant, you know, what deacon means mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, very humbling ministry. And so I think I've shed a lot of those, those pretenses that I, you know, that maybe have led me to that. But really, it's basically, it was, hey, I got all the skills, why not? You know, yeah. whereas um, I'm a little different from... Uh, uh, the other deacons I know, especially in the diocese, the guys I formed with, they're all older. I was 42 when I was ordained, so I was the second youngest in my class. Most of the permanent deacons in the United States are older. Uh, 
And they're all these real sweet guys and they got this, you know, this wonderful spirituality and they're just so gentle and I ain't gentle. <laughs> uh, I'm more the bull in the china shop. So, um, so it takes me a lot of butting my heads against the wall to, to finally um, figure out what I'm supposed to be doing and who I am. So making a lot of mistakes. So when you decided that you wanted to become a deacon, how did that conversation go with your family? Well, Nancy, and I, she always knew that I was interested. And we, we, before we moved to Park City, we lived in Idaho and they, they didn't have a program there. They didn't have a permit diaconate. So I really wanted to do it. And when we first came here and I found out that they were reinstituting it because it had been sort of dormant for a while, I just jumped right on it. I talked to Father Bob and, and, and said, you know, I want to do this. So I, I wasn't like called to it. I went to the, to him and said, I think I'm being called to this. Hmm. And then I got involved in the entire formation process. And a year into it, we lost our bishop. And then, um, we didn't have a bishop for two or three years hmm. in Regnum there. And so, so we had no program. So it stopped. And then when it, when we got the new bishop in, uh, Bishop Niederauer, um, had to start all over again. So usually it was a four year program. I had a five year program. Oh wow! So and what and what is that process? It is well when I first uh, was going through there was there were no national directives. Now there are. It's a thousand hours in the classroom, a thousand hours in the parish parish work doing a practicum there. So it's very much, it's more of a, it's, it's sort of like a, the equivalent of a master's in pastoral theology. Okay. Not systematic, it's pastoral. It's really, you know, the hands-on workings kind of thing. So, And I, I was surprised to find out that the, um, the formation of the, of the diaconate is fairly new, like the mid-1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how have you seen it evolve over time? Well, I think what they did, for, and, and, and interestingly, a really close friend of my family's growing up was one of, in the first class, class of deacons um, in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And this was like in the early 70s. And it was almost like they didn't know what they were doing. It, the, actually, the, the restoration of the permit diaconate was one of the first things that was promulgated off of, out of uh, Vatican II, even before, I think, the, um, the liturgy. Um, and so they really didn't know. It's almost like they were just, we have a need, but you need to ordain a bunch of guys. <laughs> um, I've heard of classes where they just, okay, it's 30 men, boom, you're all, you're all deacons. And so they found there were a lot of gaps in that, in that we didn't have the foundation to be able to um, understand and explain not just church teachings, doctrine, but who the church is. And so even it was after I was ordained in 04 that they came out and said, no, we're going to do a really tighten things up. You, you have to all, I think you have to have um, a college degree now in the U S there, there's exceptions of course, but uh, um, there's a pretty stringent, they have to be able to handle the academic part of it as well. Mm-hmm. So you, you would have to be able to um, do well in a college type of a setting. And in most dioceses, it's attached to a college or university, Catholic university. We don't have that here in Utah. Um, and so we would, uh, I was formed by um, the um, dean of the theology department at um, Mount Angel Seminary in Mount Angel, uh, Oregon. And um, Owen Cummings, who's a very famous um, 
uh, well-respected deacon. He would fly in like every other weekend, and we'd spend all weekend with him, you know, stuff. But that's how we had. Now I think we're relying mostly on priests and local theologians and clergy and stuff to help form the guys. What are, I guess a question is, is like, were your, were your kids older then? Because mm. I know a lot of deacons, they, they tend to become deacons when the, when the kids grow up and are leaving the house. What's, what's my, your experience? Mine are, mine were, mine were teenagers. Um, and uh, I mean, my, I was ordained in 2004. My son graduated high school in 03. And my daughter at 06. So it was, you know, and that's really a shame. And I know that we're not, we're actually now looking for younger men because uh, in the United States, the average age is over 60, but in the rest of the world, it's in the 40s. And they wanted to make sure, I think, about stability that um, you have a stable marriage, that um, your wife is supportive of this, um, that your children, you know, your family is doing okay because it is a big time commitment and uh um but i think that it really if you think about that i think that the 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 norm is is that you have to be at least 35 when you enter the program um and so we need more younger men we need you know we're out there and we have our careers and we have everything else we don't think about because we have kids we can't have a career why not this Mm -hmm. and so uh, they have the energy. They have the uh, that different point of view. It's not just a bunch of baby boomers out there <laughs> with a 1960s attitude of things. So, um, what are the main roles and responsibilities of being a deacon? Well, um, it is a uh, a ministry of service, service at the altar, We're a ministry of the word. We are um, ordinary ministers of. Uh, of the word, we teach and we preach. Uh, we read the gospel at mass, so we, we actually have a lot of um, uh, sacramental responsibilities: doing baptisms, funerals, uh, um, weddings, things like that. And then, uh, but it's a mo- more of, it's a ministry of charity where we are like that bridge. Do a lot of work out in the community. It was always that way. I mean, look at the first seven deacons were you know because the apostles. We shouldn't be waiting on tables. Usually, you guys take care of the widows. You do all that, and so we were. we're we work in the community, work with the the poor, um, prisoners, uh, the sick, uh, the dying, the grieving, things like this. Um, we are considered the ordinary ministers of these things, but n- everything a deacon can do, a layperson can do, in a pinch or an emergency. You could baptize somebody if you had to. You can preside at a funeral, not a funeral mass. You know, you could do a wedding, you know, all these kinds of things. But it's sort of like we're the ordinary ministers of that. Um, and uh, but we have extraordinary helpers all throughout. Mm-hmm. So but it's uh, it's mainly we're sort of like that bridge from the community to the church. And that's what reason why it, it always was that way. It was like you're working out in the community, in the town with the people. And then you would be that link to the community at, at liturgy. That's some one reason, for example, why we we say the prayers of the faithful. It was like, we're bringing the prayers from the community to the liturgy so we all can pray on them. 
that kind of a thing. So it's sort of like, I'll go back and, you know, I'll go visit the sick or whatever, and I'll tell Father whether so-and-so needs the anointing or this person needs this, this person needs that. So it's also, you know, directing resources and things. So that's primarily what it is. Although a lot of deacons do do administrative work. They might run a parish or they might do uh, hospital ministries or, you know, things outside of the parish. We actually are ordained for the diocese, not for the parish. So I work for the bishop. I work with my pastor and he supervises, but I actually have, you know, um, made my uh, obedience to the bishop and he can, you know, send me to hospitals, work in the diocese, the Austin offices, whatever he might be. It's not just done parish work. Okay. So then um, what are the logistics like as far as uh, where you spend your time, like going mm-hmm. to the sick, going to the hospitals, maybe people that are shut in uh, and like who decides where someone's going. This is actually something that is, um, to a large degree, up to you. When you get, what, where are your strengths? Where are your charisms? Um, but uh, we actually have contracts that we sign with our pastors. Um, I think it's to also limit that they don't take advantage, you know. But I usually go ten to fifteen hours a week in, you know, just in general. But. Um, my charisms and my strength, I think, are teaching and preaching. So that's what I do most. Then I also do a lot of work with the sick and the dying and the, and the grieving. And um, that just sort of because, you know, you have shut-ins, you have people in the hospitals, you have people come see them and bring them communion, things like this. Other people, other men are doing, I, I know one guy who's, who's from retired Air Force, he's up at Hill Air Force Base. And so he works with the families of the, the people who are deployed. You know, he has that, those kinds of, of uh, things he does. So there's so many different needs in, in the community. Uh, you find your place, and then um, and that's where you usually do your work. So on top of being a deacon, you have a full-time job. Mm-hmm. You have a side business mm-hmm. doing a lot carpentry and building church furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you manage it all? <laughs> <laughs> My kids are out of the house. <laughs> Uh, and then Nancy and I, from the very beginning, and we met in high school, and for so many years we worked together. So we, and uh, this is also, I think, a little bit unique in in the diaconate in Utah is that we do everything together. We do, like, I, if I have a wedding, she's our main wedding coordinator. She works all the weddings. She helps me set up for baptism. She um, funerals. Um, she's the co- administrator for the RCIA. So, so we do a, a lot of those ministries together. We run our, our uh, liturgical design business together. Uh, she does all the administrative work. I would do the design, the sales, and, the, and most of the fabrication. Um, my career uh, is, is at Franklin Covey as a consultant is, uh, you know, everything sort of ties all together. Um, I got the job as at Franklin Covey because one of our parishioners saw me teach and preach and said, you'd be a great training consultant. So why don't you do that? So I did. It got for me a job. I um, um, I understand liturgy, so I can, and I'm a, I'm a uh, master uh, woodworker, so I can design and build and found a niche with liturgical furnishings and things. So it all just sort of, you know, builds on itself. My work um, doing leadership training and things like this uh, helped me with my, teaching. And then all of this is also, I was a 
an English minor and a film major and things like this. So it helps me with my preaching and the way I write and things like this. So everything in my in my uh, careers has has sort of all been working together. So. Speaking of which, one of the big responsibilities that you've taken on for a long time is RCIA, mm-hmm. uh, which is what September to April, pretty much. Well, it's supposed to be year round, but we just don't have the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this is the first year that I've actually had consistent help on the team, yourself included, to help you know prepare people. Um, but um, I th- it was an interesting, funny story. Um, I've told you this before. So I was 27 years old in a little church in Haley, Idaho, and I had really didn't know anything about my faith, even though I'd gone through, you know, uh, Jesuit University and all those kinds of things. I didn't know anything. And the priest was going on sabbatical, and he said, could you teach a couple of classes? We have some adults who are looking to become Catholic, and gives me these binders and a couple of classes that's now been 35 years um, has grown into it. So, um, and hundreds and hundreds of people who we've, we've journeyed along with. But I think that you, I didn't know anything about my faith really. And until you teach it. And so that's where I really learned it. And I learned apologetics, probably very similar to your, your journey on that, you know, but it's more just answering questions, you know, being with people as they're going through their journeys of faith. And I have, you know, I have gone through and done other certificates and stuff uh, more formally, but uh, but mostly it's just doing it yeah. and stuff. So there's nothing yeah. like teaching that'll teach you to learn. <laughs> but it's not just teaching, as you know, in this process, you've been through it. It's uh, uh, it is truly forming small Christian communities, and you really, really. Um, come to know the practical applications of your faith and the problems that people have with it versus, hey, I, you know, I know theology. You, you got to know the theology, but you got to be able to put in people's, in the language people can understand. Yeah, absolutely. And you got to, and by doing all the other ministries, especially to the dying and the sick, where they're, they're the most vulnerable, that's when you really learn that everything we do is just a ministry of presence, just being there for people and not worrying so much about all the other stuff. Um, what advice would you give to someone who was discerning whether to become a deacon? Um, well, look at it from various different, it's like, it's just, it's like any vocation in the church or even vocation just in general. How did you discern what kind of job or career you wanted or who you're going to ask to marry you and things like this? You have, um, criteria that you discern against and, um, but it, there'll be an inner voice. There'll be something within you that it, it's going to be tugging at you and bothering you. And uh, so I sort of like with when you fall in love, it's I, I really don't feel right unless I'm with that person. And um, so that's the one thing. Pray, obviously, and listen to other people. Um, I told you I went and I thought I was being called. I went to the, the pastor but our other deacon, uh, Deacon Bob, he was called by the pastor and myself and said, hey, have you, have you ever thought, have you ever thought of this? So we always tell our um, our newly baptized and when they're looking for their place in the church is, if someone comes up to you and says, have you ever thought about doing this? Don't just discount it. Because oftentimes 
the spirit has moved them to ask you because they see something in you you might not see. Um, so that's a very strong indicator if other people are asking you about it. Um, but pray about it, obviously. Test out a lot of these things. Not everybody has the, they might feel they're called to it. They might not have the skill set. They might not have the personality for it. Um, it's uh, it's not whether you're an introvert, extrovert or whatever. It's it's really, how are you, how is your emotional intelligence level? How are you at relating with people? How, can, how empathetic can you be? How compassionate can you be? Um, and then just realize that um, it's not up to you, really. Uh, and there's a whole team of people who will be helping you discern. Once you're accepted into the program, you are constantly evaluated. Not as much as a priest is, but there's a psychological, there's you know, a spiritual director. Uh, they'll be evaluating your progress throughout the whole thing. And um, uh, Archbishop Niederauer said to us once, he said, you know, if I come to you a month before your scheduled ordination and say, you know, we all think that really this is not what you're being called to, you should be disappointed, but not destroyed. No one has a right to any ministry. It's the, the church actually discerns and calls you as well. So, um, and I actually almost dropped out six months before my ordination. I didn't think I was worthy. I didn't think I was the right thing. Yeah, and then Father Bob said, you know, he's calling you and the church will ordain you as you are. They know how you are, you know, and so they, with all the warts and everything. So um, I bet you every priest would tell you the same thing. What has been the biggest blessing for you as a deacon? Um, people let you into their lives oftentimes at the most vulnerable stages just because of who you are. I can say things and do things just because I'm a deacon that you can't. You'd have to earn that a little bit more. It's sort of like you get the badge, you get the uniform, you got that respect, or they'll expect you to say and do certain things. But um, I thought I was really frightened of, of working with uh, people who were very sick. What am I going to say? Am I going to screw it up? And yeah, I did. And I do. Um, but it's very humbling. And I think what it is helping me do is prepare for my own death. You know, that's actually a thing, having a prepared death. That you are ready, that you, you know, your life is, is lived a certain way and you'll die a certain way. And so by, by experiencing and going through these journeys with these people, um, it really, it's, it's really softened me and it's helped me to, I think, prepare for my own mortality. Um, it does get tough sometimes. I mean, I've had just last year alone, six of my close friends died and I had to, I say, well, I got to help another one die. I got to help another one die. And um, you can get compassion fatigue. And it's sort of like, who's there to counsel the counselor? So you really also have to have a very strong support system in this. Um, so I think, you know, that's the, the thing mostly personally. Um, I hope it's been helping me in my other relationships, closer relationships. You also have to balance that you can be tugged and, and, uh, in many different ways and neglect your family, neglect other things because you think, oh, I got to do this. You know, church wants me to do it. Father wants me to do it. You kind of know how to say no. 
you got to have a strong sense of what your boundaries are. So. All right, last question. Mm. Question I like to ask people at the end of interviews is the title of this podcast is called Why Catholic? If someone came up to you and said, hey, why are you Catholic? Other than you were born into a Catholic family, what would be your answer? Well, it's actually what I'm going to be preaching on this weekend because it's the, the raising of Lazarus. And we all have um, what is truth and who is truth. And I've come throughout my discernment, my prayer, my experience to, to believe that, that Catholicism is the fullest expression of the truth. And I think that's important. So I'm there mostly because I believe it's true. Uh, alongside that is the Eucharist. If it weren't for the uh, um, the actual body, being able to receive the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, to get that close to my Creator and to my Savior, um, um, that is that is so amazing. And to be able to 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 bring the um, um, the world to the transcendent, the transcendent to the world, to be that, you know, on both sides there. So, but mostly I think it's because I, I wholly believe that it is the truth, and I think it's important to follow the truth, and that there is one truth, not my truth, your truth. There, there are things that are true. So that gives me comfort and a sense of stability as well. But, but it's also meeting people like you and, and all the, the cool folks and their journeys and and, uh, and being able to share in their lives and their joys and their um, their sufferings and help to make sense of all the senseless things that are out there. It's hard to imagine the Catholic Church without the role of deacons for nearly 1,500 years. In an era where there is a shortage of priests, deacons, especially today, do so much in helping carry out the mission of the church. I want to thank Deacon Tom for joining me for this interview and for his integral role in our family's Catholic journey. And I want to thank all the deacons out there serving the Catholic Church. In the show notes, I've provided a few links. The first is to Deacon Tom's business, Tecton Woodworks. Take a minute to peruse his portfolio. The work he's done is truly stunning. The second link is to an archive of Deacon Tom's sermon on his blog called Turbo Catholic. He is such a gifted preacher. The third link is to an article in the Salt Lake Tribune entitled Deacon Tom Builds Faith and Furniture. Take a look at those links. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.